Welcome to the Rising Lioness podcast on All About Animals Radio, a place dedicated to animals and all those who act to protect and advocate for them. Hi, I'm your host, Erica Salvamini, and I'm thrilled and honored to be here representing All About Animals Radio using my voice for the animals. Thank you for joining us for what intends to be a thought-provoking and soul-inspiring series where we discuss topics aimed at understanding the importance of the relationship between empathy, animal rights, and our peaceful coexistence with the animal kingdom. And now, on to our show. Hello. Hi, you guys. How are you? Pretty good, good thank you. Good, good. It's so nice to have you here. Um, for our audience, I just want to say today we're welcoming two actual personal fav- uh, personal heroes of mine, Craig Spencer and Leita Makabala. I hope I said your name correctly. Um, Craig is the executive director of Transfrontier Africa, founder and, ma- and manager of the Black Mamba's anti-poaching unit, director at Wild Animals Tracking Solutions, warden and ecological advisor at the Balule Nature Reserve in South Africa. Craig has initiated marine anti-poaching in the southern coastal regions of Africa, as well as several poverty relief initiatives. In 2013, Craig founded the Black Mamba's anti-poaching unit. The Black Mamba initiative currently employs 36 women from the local tribal communities. Among many other prestigious awards, Craig and the Black Mambas have been recognized as the best rhino conservation practitioner in Johannesburg in 2015, by Game Rangers Association of Southern Africa, as well as the UNEP Champions of the Earth Award in 2015. Craig is also founder of the Bush Babies Environmental Education Program, which aims to educate children from local schools, as well as their families, about the environment and animals in order to help them grow into environmentally conscious adults and citizens of South Africa. We also welcome Leita Makabala, supervisor to the Black Mambas, as well as Sergeant, Ambassador, and Media Liaison um, for this elite all-female anti-poaching unit that is the Black Mambas. Welcome, Craig and Leita. Thank you so much for being here today. And is my- Thanks, Erica. Of course, of course. <laughs> can I can I just um, just make one quick correction there? I stepped down as the uh, head warden of Baluli in, well, just before the pandemic. Okay. And I now concentrate just on the western section, which is called Olifant's West Nature Reserve. So I'm I'm the warden of the Olifant's West section, no longer the warden of the bigger Baluli landscape. Very good. Thank you for that correction. I will also correct the the bio on the profile for that. So thanks, Eric. Of course, um, it's my great honor and privilege to speak with you both here today about this critical time in our world, as well as for wildlife conservation and also to discuss the remarkable work of this fearless group of dedicated women who are preserving wildlife in South Africa today and for its future. And I also want to congratulate you for this wonderful work you've been doing now for 10 years. It is your 10 year anniversary, is it not? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's amazing, good work. Um, and there is so much to discuss and I am so in awe of both of you and your work. I could literally ask you questions till the sun went down and it's only 9 a.m. here in the New York City area. (laughs) So with that, we'll just jump right in. And, um, Craig, I thought I'd start by asking you, um, how was it, what, what, you know, what was the moment for you when you decided the Black Mambas was necessary? Did you wake up that morning and decide I'm going to have Weetabix for breakfast and, 
By the way, I think I'll form the most badass elite group of superhero women to defeat poachers and save wildlife. Is that, in my mind, that's like how it happened. <laughs> it, was, it was a similar story. We were sitting around the campfire at night and we were having a little bit of rum and uh, to drown our sorrows because we had just <laughs> lost our first rhinos to poaching. So the poaching started in about 2010 in this neck of the woods. And... Um, and then when we were approached to ask, you know, do you have any potential solutions? Can you assist, et cetera? I said, we can try, but we're going to do it differently because the old traditional model hasn't worked up until date, you know, in trying to shoot the problem off the landscape. We've created rifts, blah, blah, blah. There were a lot of things that we thought um, as ecologists and scientists and anthropologists and so on that had to change. We thought, you know, we've got to address this in a different way. We needed a different set of in our toolbox and we sat there and captain morgan is the brand of the rum and it was very inspirational and we came up with the idea that we needed a multi-generational impact because this is the thing you know people in my position only get into a decision-making capacity towards the end of their career uh, so your impact is actually really small and you think oh you know i've won the small i've won the day uh, but i've handed this problem over to the next warden who comes along and then the next one and the next one so there's no consistency there's no continuity blah 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 so we said okay what's our single biggest resource it's not diamonds and gold and oil and all the other wonderful things that you find on the african continents it's the young women and there's a multi-generational investment that you can make here and they're already the primary caregivers in the communities they're already fitter than all of us put together because they have to collect water in water cans on their heads you know and they have to go and collect firewood in the bush and Look after the kids and the elderly and the sick in the communities. That's the kind of spirit that you're looking for. That's the ethos that you're looking for, that caring, nurturing attitude. That's what we want. We don't want people jumping out of helicopters with Belgian Malinois strapped to their chests and night vision goggles because it's cool. We right. want people protecting wildlife because they care. Uh, you know, there's a big difference there. So hence, these ladies, I've said enough. Beautiful, beautiful. Leita, it, and actually my next question was going to be for you. How did you know that this was your calling? How did you, what was that moment for like for you? Uh, so when I grew up, my granny used to work in, in Kruger a long time ago, and she was sharing more information about the animals, the animals' behavior and how she encountered animals there. So that's where I fell in love with animals. By that time, I've never been into Kruger. I've never seen animals. So as I was in my high school, that's when I've learned that uh, in South Africa, we are losing rhinos through poaching. So remembering what my granny told me, it brought me back to that I am that woman who want to protect the iconic animals of South Africa. And then um, what I like most about this is that it took a man to realize that women are the best people for this. So when I heard about the post, I just came straight and applied and I got a job and we are here doing our best. It's beautiful. You're giving me chills telling me this story, uh, both of you. It's just, um, it's amazing. It's uh, it's something. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your stories. And you're, it's, uh, it would be a dream to come and ride along with you someday. So I'm going to squirrel that in the back of my head. And <laughs> you know, yeah, Erica, we joke, we, we joke about it. Um, you just mentioned coming along with the Mambas on a patrol. You know, we've got these commercial lodges that operate in the area and people pay so much money to come and stay in a commercial lodge and go on a game drive to see the big five. They get to see it every time they go out on a patrol. It's amazing. If I wasn't, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a single mom. I have two boys. They're the lights of my life. I, you know, they're everything to me. And, but if, 
if that was not my life and it was something totally different, I would be locking the door, packing my stuff up and I'd be out and I'd be begging to, to have you let me join. (laughs) Yeah. And that, you know, we touched on this and I know I'm I'm going to ad lib quite a bit. So just um, stop me dead in my tracks. If I, if I am shooting my mouth off, but you know, something that we are striving to get back something. When I entered this industry 27 years ago, the, the the attraction was that you're surrounded by um, peers and there's this kind of pseudo kinship model where everybody in conservation, we enjoy the sunset, we love the sound of the elephants trumpeting and the hyenas calling at night and make a fire. And, you know, and you just you just love every change of season and uh, that's the impala rutting. I can't wait to see how the lambing is doing. And so those were the people that you wanted to surround yourself with right. in the bush. And then when the rhino poaching came back again, because I mean, this is a cyclical thing, it's it's not new. Anybody that's been as long as I have in the conservation arena here in, in Africa has been through this several times. And we have now modified um, unwittingly, I think, uh, recruitment policies, budgets, everything, to put more and more money into fortification models of guns and bombs and helicopter fuel and um, police dogs and so on and so on and so on. And those people have all reached retirement level and left. So now we are attracting soldiers ex-soldiers, people trying to um, duplicate the lifestyle of soldiering or, or law enforcement and so on. So that we've lost a certain kind of an ethos. And I'm not bashing the one side. I'm just saying it's really sad for me that we've lost the other side. Who do I sit and enjoy my coffee with in the mornings now? Um, the soldiers with war paint on twitching to get out there and go and shoot something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a negative kind of energy that yeah. has been replaced on the landscape. And a, a nature... Apps, yeah. You know, nature reserve, a game park, whatever. It's supposed to be a happy place. It's supposed to be a place where you can let your soul dream about ancient wisdoms. And, uh, you know, and you see an elephant that's clearly going to outlive me on this landscape and carrying its baby for 22 months. I mean, the wisdom in that animal, uh, you know, and we just drive past now without even waving and taking our hat off and and bowing in its general direction. Taking for granted. Yeah, it's uh, that was should never it should never be lost on any of us. Nature, wildlife, it all Mother Earth heals us and we should be back. And that is noble. Exactly. And as noble as it might be to rush around and uh, just purely do anti poaching where we've kind of lost the ethos, you know, we've lost the whole reason why we have national parks and things in the first place and what intrinsic values they have and, and, and spiritual values and so on. We, we lost it. Right. So I want that back. So that's a kind of hidden story that I've never really told anybody because that's around the campfire. Uh, but when you gave me your introduction earlier, I thought you would understand more than anybody else. And these guys bring it back. Yeah. The, it's like the mother nurturing instincts of women that they, yeah. you all can tap into the, you know, mother earth. I mean, that's basically what you're doing. You're working on her behalf. You're in the service of, of earth right. kingdoms, the animal kingdom more specifically. Um, but I, you know, it's amazing and it should be that way. We should be leading with our hearts to protect and preserve yeah. um, humanity. You know, where's the humanity in the work that we're doing? And if we lose that, if we lose our humanity and we're just putting on war paint and holding guns, then we're, we've lost something and we have lost something, haven't we? But we're getting it back. There is the, the yeah. light is coming back and there are more people who do want to, um, more of what you're doing, the conservation, the the saving of of animals and 
you know, we don't want to just have them in picture books for, for, you know, our children to see our grandchildren and great grandchildren to see one day. I yeah. can't imagine that. That's just the concept. I won't even, I can't even imagine such a, a terrible thing. Erica, you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. You know, if we lose the, the spiritual connection, because it's now a, a war zone, if, if it, and I think it's so subtle that we don't actually notice that it's happening when a tourist comes in through this gate you've flown your family halfway around the world uh you've burned a lot of carbon whatever it might be you're really feeling slightly guilty for that uh you know and then you arrive at this national park and the first person you meet is a militarized soldier with a sniffer dog that treats you like a criminal saying, thou shalt not thou shalt not thou shalt not you know you you don't notice it at the time but I can promise you that this kind of negativity from the minute you climb out of your car for the first time is all around you. There's rules in place and now we've militarized. And I, I think it's really super sad um, that we've taken that, that spiritual value away because it's it's throwing um, water on the fire of your spirit yeah. the minute you arrive. It malfunctions uh, uh, the whole purpose yeah. of our existence. and Like a blocker kind of thing, you know? And, and we've got to realize that what you said earlier is so very true. Conservation is something from the heart. It's philosophical. It is, uh, you know, you've got to be able to plumb the depths of your soul to grasp the significance of the work that we do. Science is a tool that we use. It's a tool in our toolbox, just like soldiering and guns and police. Those are also tools. But the real conservation comes from the heart. It comes from the soul it's just like a musician you know you can go to uh, or you know have lots of friends <laughs> go and study music and art and then they get a certificate at the university but they still can't draw and they still can't plonk on a piano right so it doesn't make you a musician that comes from the heart it does you know and an art, it's it all the stuff that connects us to source and that doesn't make yes. religious to say that it's just it's just what is you spirituality know? Yeah, we can separate the two, religion and spirituality. And, and I needed that. And I needed a, a very short lag period to get it back. And these guys brought it back so like this. It's, yeah. yeah, right. And and you knew it. So you obviously, um, it was your calling, Craig, as well as for Leighton and all the other other wonderful women. Um, you know, you couldn't do one without the other. So it's like, you know, yin and yang, yeah. you all fit together. And it's the perfect... Uh, the, all the pieces have come together and I would love it if, and it's one of my questions later on, but yeah, I mean, if replicating what you've done here for the Black Mambas is something that I think should be really looked at. I mean, just, if, I, I do this animal advocacy work because I love it. It's my passion. I am a volunteer doing this podcast because I just feel like I needed to do something. And there, so I talked to different people around the world and, and in Australia, for instance, the kangaroos, they're, you know, this iconic animal that everybody knows as part of Australia, kangaroos and koala bears, they're killing, yeah. they're annihilating um, the kangaroos right now. And the government has like given the okay and the approval for it. And it's, it's for the, you know, kangaroo product industry, but they're going to be annihilated. They're going to be gone. And something needs to be done about this. And, and that, again, this is where I think of you guys and think of the Black Mambas, like you should be on continents everywhere. And it's just, to me, it's a no brainer. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm the crazy one, but I, I just no, think- No, you're not crazy. Erica, we need to change our attitude towards our consumptive activities. And I'll, I'll tell you something you touched on. Domestication of animals is probably one of our biggest failures in life, you know, mm -hmm. in our evolution. And we went through- about 125,000 years of 
domesticating wolves and cattle and so on, you know, for our convenience. I think it actually had mutual benefit for the wolves because they could eat our scraps. Sure. Know, they knew what they were doing. <laughs> and it is, but the, the irony is that when you look again in the Western Hemisphere, we now, I mean, in the Northern Hemisphere, we now carry little pink poodles around in our handbags. So we've gone from the, the animal as a tool in our toolbox to this over pampered chocolate cake eating uh, purple washed poodle yeah. in, a, in a handbag. And yet there's thousands and thousands of homeless animals running around that are mistreated, chained under a tree in the blazing sun, not given water and food and everything. And we've had to put institutions in place, uh, uh, special prevention of cruelty to animals, special legislations, courts that deal with it, lawyers that specialize in it, volunteers, NGOs, et cetera, to try and rectify this thing yep. that was, you know, that we started. And they're mass, started, and yeah. mass euthanizing all of the unwanted yes. animals. It, it drives yeah. us crazy. And later, and, and I, we think about it a lot. And, we and, actually I'm, start I'm, and I'm in the pet industry and I understand it is a, a love and a love hate relationship because I own a pet spa and I take care of many of these pampered babies. But actually, mm. what it turned out to be was I take care of all the special needs pets. And why are there so many special needs pets? And <laughs> I just happen to call them that. It's not like that's a coined term, but they're yeah. they're all malfunctioning because of all the things that have been done. There are all these, you know, designer bred animals that cost thousands of dollars. Yes. And because you know, behind the scenes, if you pull the curtain back, you'll there's a, a breeding industry that is that is quite dark. You know, are there some reputable ones out there? Sure, but in the end, we're still not honoring the uh, respecting the animal's choice, and that's really where it needs to start, isn't it? It start needs to yeah. start in with the communities, with the people, training them, helping them understand it is about education, and you know, it's not. There is no judgment. It's just, this is just what's what's become of humanity. This yeah. is what we have become, but that doesn't mean it has to stay that way. There is a point where we all have to say, okay, just a moment of self-awareness, start it at some point and then continue it on. And if we all have self-awareness every single day to ask the questions, why are we still doing it this way? Should we do it this way? Would this be, you know, where's my moral compass? Let me find and tap into my moral compass. That's and correct. Ask every ask that of everything that we do in our lives. Is yeah. this should we be doing this? Why are we doing this? And you know, this is the last thing I'll say on the on the domestication issue. But I, I want to close with this: How can I ask the people in the local communities that can barely put food on the table to respect the fact that the big fat wildlife is running around here and they shouldn't touch it? Uh, these animals here, they're fine. They're very happy. There's 3 million hectares for them to run around on. It's the size of several small European countries, you know, <laughs> in South Park. They're fine. It's the animals on the other side that are fine. And if I can bridge that that disconnect where the donkey just pulls my cart, the dog chases uh, jackals away from my chickens, you know, so if I can bridge that and say, actually, these animals still feel stresses, um, right. they still need attention and, and love and cuddling and all that kind of thing, then it will be much easier for me to say, you know, it's really unfair to uh, uh, bludgeon an animal to get uh, cut its face off for its horn because it's un it's not nice. Right. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but let's get it done at home with I the do. domestic animals. Right. Then it will be much easier for me to save the wildlife. And right. these ladies will have an easier time in their community of convincing their peers as well. Yeah. There needs, there's a disconnect with empathy, you know, for everything in life, yeah. you know, I also do energy work. And so I am tapped into, you know, people suffering and 
Mm. You know, that transcends down. And if people, if everyone just, you know, at some point wanted to heal themselves, we all have a responsibility to heal ourselves. Yeah. Look at what we are and who we are and what we've become. And yes, we can all say everybody's got trauma, right? From one to one degree or another in their life. Mm -hmm. And what that turns into and what that looks like for each of us individually matters. But we may not be responsible for what happened to us, but we are responsible for becoming better becoming better versions of ourselves, the highest and greatest mm -hmm. of ourselves. And then if, if everybody did that, like, you know, I won't name names, but there are nation, you know, uh, nation leaders that if they became good, pure souls and healed their inner wounded child, imagine mm -hmm. if we all did that, we would all start being kind to one another. And then we would have be able to empathy for animals, whether it's the, you know, the donkey and, or, you know, monkeys in cages in these meat markets in, you know, in wherever, yeah. Cambodia, all, all around the world, we could just, you know, have empathy and, and, and feel and understand that animals are sentient beings, and they do have the ability mm -hmm. to love and have compassion. These things will feel the same stresses, the same social pressures, uh, the same anxieties, uh, etc. They might process it differently, but I promise you, they don't deserve to be put under the pressure that we do. And that goes for our food as well, let me tell you. We want to eat these things and we must treat them with respect. Right. Okay. Right. Move it. We, I, I, otherwise, we're a bunch of hypocrites sitting here <laughs> in the African bush trying to protect wildlife. And yet then we go out there and do these other terrible things. But anyway. And it's, it is all linked. Like you said, it's all linked. It is. So, it is. all right. Let's, let's ask some fun questions. The, the listeners may want to know how are the ladies trained and either one of you can jump in and explain like is it is it like military boot camp i was going to ask do you wear fatigues but i do see that you wear fatigues and i know that you're <laughs> unarmed so like how does that how does that work uh so um, i will first explain why we are unarmed it's because uh we cherish life and we don't want to use bullets to win uh, this war. We want to use education and knowledge. Like as you were saying that uh, we have to teach people from the village about loving the domestic animals before uh, the wild animals. So that's what we're doing. We send message back home and uh, we teach them. Whenever I go on my leave, I'm still not on my leave. I look at what's happening in the community. If I see someone's dog is sick, I tell them what to do, where they should go to help that animal. And um, we have went through a hard training. If Craig said we're going for that training, I, I'm not going now. So, <laughs> but, the training, <laughs> but the training was worth it. For the whole 10 years, one of the black members has been killed by poachers. And we have came across uh, rhino poachers and we always come across um, bushmeat poachers. Mm -hmm. All of these, they, uh, these people, they come inside the reserve with weapons or um anything that can kill or harm a person, but none of us has been into in, in, in an accident like that, in an incident like that. So uh, the training was very much worth it. We went for three months training. We stayed uh, 12 days in the bush with uh, less water. You wake up early in the morning around four, you have to cook and finish. And when someone comes there, they mustn't tell that you were there, you were cooking. And then you go out and start working, learning about um animals tracking the bush itself, the poachers, how to protect uh, the iconic animals. And then until late at night, you come back and you have to wait, uh, like we're sleeping in a bomber. We did, we, we did a bomber with a noptons 
we're protecting ourselves from the big heads so they don't come inside. And it, it was something from me as a lady who's just coming from the village. I know nothing about the bush. And now I have to create a house with a knob phones and make sure that the cats don't come and eat me. And we are used to, and we are used to waking up from the chicken sound. Yeah. And now you wake up from a lion roaring. <laughs> so that was something different, but it was a, it was a good experience that we have gained. And from being a village girl to a professional black mamba, we have changed a lot. Our mentality have changed. Our understanding has changed. So it was like a soldier training. You have to run five kilometers every day. Um, you have to do push-ups. Um, you have to learn about teamwork, leadership, and disciplines were involved. If you do something wrong or your colleague do something wrong, you're all involved. In you know, we were learning how to be a team in a in a big five area because we have to pro uh, to to protect off. You have to go out with somebody whom you can believe that if they see an lion, they will stop me and we have to think what should we do. So for the whole 10 years, none of us has been harmed by animals or by poachers because we are still in that level of the training that we got and we continue getting skills, different skills now and then skills about media, um, what happened when we encounter uh, like uh, elephants, lions. So it was a lot and uh, it was worth it. I remember when I go home, uh, the first time I came here, when I tell my mom that uh, I've sent out my CV and I got a job, I have to go and train. Uh, the job is to be uh, a black mom, but I'm gonna be a ranger working in the in the game resolve. And she was like, are you, uh, are you gonna be with a man who will be holding a weapon? Because that's the mentality that we grow up into, that only a man can be a ranger, not a woman. So mm -hmm. they believe that you need a man by your side who's holding a weapon to protect you. And um, the first day on my training, we were passing wood spray texturing with our uh, kit bags. And we were drilling, we were shouting left, right, left, right, with our sergeant <laughs> behind us. Yeah. And we had, um, there were a few guys, the taxi drivers, they were like, what are those girls doing? We have seen men run away from the training of project. They're not going to do it. And one thing that will happen to them, they won't be able to give birth. It's going to destroy their body. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's it's sinking our mind. Like, is it, is, is it true? Because we didn't know what's going to happen to us in the bush, the training that we're going to face. We just been told about it, but you haven't done the practical. So we went there with that mind of like, and now I'm scared. I think my mom was right. I'm not the right person for this. And then we went through the training. On the last day, we all told our subject, can we go back and start again? Mm. Because it was like, wow, the training was amazing. It changed us in a lot of uh, a different way, the impact that we had. And when we go home, we're very skinny. So my mom just saw me and like, what happened? What did they do to you? So I started explaining to her what was happening. And she was like trying to believe me. But, and then I came back to start waking. And when they start seeing that, oh, this thing is waking, the ladies are now in uniform. Everyone is talking about them. And we we got uh, recognized from the United States for, for the uh, champion of the earth. We started being the role models in our community. Everybody wants to know about the Black Mambas, how we are doing it, because uh, for so many years, it has been men with weapons. And now what are women doing in the bush without weapons? And they seem to be doing very well. And um, the shocking thing was that we are patrolling uh, the boundaries of Balula where there's a, a busy main road. 
So many people are seeing us and they are hooting. Some of them stops. What are you doing? We just saw lions from that side. Are you guys going to make it? And you know, now people are admiring us. And the truck, the truck drivers, when they drive and see lions, they will stop. And that is, watch out, there are lions. That's like everybody is warning us. When there are lions outside the reserve, people stop us and tell us. When there are elephants outside of the reserve, um, uh, and, and then we're going to have, um, a, a, um, what is this? Um, a human and wildlife conflict. People will stop you and tell you, Black Mambas, we have seen an elephant, we need your help. So, so many people have seen what the Black Mambas are doing and the training that we went through, we thought uh, it was bad training, but it was a good training ever that I went through. For 10 years, we're all still fine without weapon. And we're doing very well. And we think it's best. If you can ask me if I want to use a weapon, no. I want to continue doing it the same way that we are doing it now because we are able and we change direction or we wait for them to move and then we continue with our patrol. Mm, that was well put. Thank you, Leda. You know, the, the significant thing, Erica, is that we chose the military training style, the paramilitary training, because first, it's an industry norm. You get into the anti-poaching arena. There's a, um, a prescribed curricula, if you like, uh, before you can be registered as a security guard and blah, blah, blah. So we had to do that anyway. And obviously, we spiced it up a bit. But the, um, the thing is that it builds a kinship. And so now the sisterhood of the Black Mambas, you know, if they all had to go through this, and the training is very brutal. It's very hard, especially the fitness stuff. It's 40 plus degrees Celsius outside of these ladies. <laughs> you get very little sleep. And it's basically the equivalent of basic training uh, in the army. Okay. Uh, but then on, what we realized is that all of our training facilities in the entire country are designed to train men. So the, the facilities were not suited for women. That, that includes open air bathrooms, um, communal showers, uh, and if you have a mixed group in, it's 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 really not economical to take a group of five people at a time and train them because then you must book out the entire training facility for five people. You would normally have 20 or 30 people on that course. So now you've got five young women from a local tribal community intermingling with a whole bunch of other hairy men, yeah. you know, and <laughs> I mean, it's never going to work. I mean, what the hell? You know? So, you know, we had to rearrange just about everything. We've had four intakes now, and every time that we do another intake, we've improved and we've streamlined and we've built better facilities and better and better and better. The survival training that later was talking about now is in the bush for a week, uh, you know, and you've got to share a little, you make a little tent thingy, a little bivouac out of sticks and, and yeah. thorn branches to protect you from the lions, as you said, and the leopards and so on. Uh -huh. You can't, you can't ask a young woman, their fathers and their brothers and their boyfriends would never accept that they will sleep in in a tent and share a sleeping bag and that with another man or another guy from an to forget it you know so we have to be very aware of integrating women into this arena means change has to start at the bottom uh, with everything from the facilities to the curriculum and we also have to be aware that they have a very important function to play in the household so for me to take them away for three months Who's collecting the firewood, looking after the grandmothers, looking after all the sisters' kids so the older sister can get a job and so on. We, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to take into, into account. Anyway, 
that's uh that's intense that's amazing um that that goes on and i had a feeling that that was the kind of training that you were all were doing it just kind of makes sense that it would have to be that intense and or since you're putting your lives on the line basically for for the animal yeah. and you're coming up against some pretty um dark people who are willing to to do anything to get that horn and um or whatever animal it is that they're trying to kill. So I have a question for you. And it, it, I don't remember where it came across to me that I heard that the black mambas, they're female because they're incorruptible. That it, I don't know if that's part of the reason or it just happens to be one of the things as a, as a side effect because um, women, the women are you know, the nurturers and they're dedicated. And one might even say it's your uncompromising yeah. convictions that allows yeah. them to take on the poachers it, and win. You know, we've got a saying here that no poacher can be successful unless somebody is helping him on the inside. Okay. Right. And I stick with that. After 27 years of doing anti-poaching work in Africa, I can guarantee you that a poacher will not succeed unless there's somebody inside helping them with information, opening and closing a gate, off-duty tracker coming on, whatever it might be, and it's it's bloody stressful. So we have a um, uh, a process that we go through. We call it honesty verification, and that includes polygraph testing and screening cell phones and so on and so on. And in how long has it been? Our ten years. Eh? This is this actually marks our ten year anniversary. Congratulations! <laughs> yeah, and none of the mumbas have ever failed that process. So, uh, but yet I've had such a high turnover of the men. You must you must remember, perhaps I should have qualified in the beginning. When we started with the Black Mamas, I already had 40 armed rangers, paramilitarized armed rangers protecting the wildlife here, and they were all men. Okay, but through the polygraph process, you have such a high turnover, you're training all the time new people to take the place. You're catching them out red-handed. They're breaking the rules. And it's not just whether they're helping poachers along. It's silly things like when the lions kill a giraffe, that's going to feed that lion pride now for a week or more. Uh, but when we look again, the guys have gone, they chased the lions away and have harvested all the meat of the giraffe carcass. You know? So you can't be a conservationist protecting that and, and then at the same time irritating. Don't even remember the one guy climbed up the tree and stole the leopard's um, the leopard killed a small and antelope it's called an impala and he pulled it up into the tree and the, the ranger the anti-poaching ranger saw this and thought hang on a minute i'll take that thank you very much you know and chase the leopard away so all of this kind of interference and then we found that the men were also chasing the rhinos to chase them out of the area that they were patrolling in because they didn't want this they wanted to go to sleep at night they didn't want the stress of um, having to look after them and getting shouted at on the radio for sleeping and so on so I was like, no, hang on, you know, we're supposed to be conservation. Where's this conservation ethic? Where's this ethos? It's it's gone. That doesn't happen with the women. It never has because there's no ego here. Right. Okay. And and there's no uh, shortcuts. And I think there's also a, a huge responsibility on you in the household uh, to provide as a breadwinner. And you know, if you must know that if you pay one salary in South Africa eight other people in that village benefit directly from that. So that's the national statistics here. That's so I think that pressure, that's a social pressure that the that the women feel when they go back home. They're providers and they're caregivers. Yeah, so, so, 
So as you mentioned that we we are the mothers of the earth, mm. it, it, it's quite easier for us to know where the rhinos is and don't tell anyone about it. Because the same way I would protect my child, that's the same way we protect the rhinos. Right. And we are inside the reserve. Like I spent 21 days inside waking and then 10 days off. So I want to protect, or I'm protecting the iconic animals for the next I don't want my kids to grow up seeing the rhino in the picture. I've, I've taken so many pictures. I don't want them to only see it on those pictures or magazine newspapers. I want them to see the real rhinos. And we don't go to bottle stores and, and drink and, and share information. Because when you're drinking, you get drunk. You don't know what you're talking Exactly. You're talking, you might be telling um, the, wrong, uh, the, the, the right information to the wrong person. I think it's quite significant because there's a level of responsibility that the women carry that um, I think the men sometimes lack. They also uh, might have got away with so many indiscretions and things in their community. Just being men is very patriarchal at the end of the day. And sometimes information slips out. You go to the bar, you drink like Lazer was saying, uh, you know, and you're like, oh, you work in, in the game reserve. Yeah. Say, oh, cool. The rhinos, of course, you know, and don't worry about it. So information might not be given out with ill intentions. It's just that it's irresponsible and the men don't see it as such a lot of the time. I what know. else could you say on this? Um, I think in, in our villages, when you're a man and you're not able to provide very well for your family, um, you, you lose your dignity a bit. Even when uh, there's a gathering where we are, where people are talking about the village, what they can improve in the village. Sometimes when you want to say something, people don't see mm. you, don't take you serious because you don't have cows, you, you don't have a big house. And so that kind of a man, if, 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 if someone can approach them and say, I want you to go inside the game reserve and kill a rhino or you waking as a ranger, uh, I think I can boost your salary with 50K this mm. month. If, if you can tell me where the rhinos are, I will, I will do everything myself. You won't be involved. They sometimes easily to agree with that because they have never um, had a chance to hold uh, 50K or 100K. And they feel like, oh, <laughs> I'll be able, or I'll be able to, to buy cars and build a big house for my family. So those kind of things makes them agree to something that they know that they should mm. be doing. Yeah. I think it's very, very significant what latest just touched on now, Eric, is the, the massive socioeconomic pressure right. um, on the majority of the people in South Africa, probably in, in most of the sub-Saharan African countries is the, you know, and we forget very quickly that there is a, a hierarchy in these communities and there's this human dignity that's lost when you don't have access to resources and whatever. So it becomes very attractive, you know, and then we also reeling from um, how many 60 years of apartheid right. uh, you know, and we expecting in one single generation for this to be fixed, uh, you know, and here's a bunch of white people sitting on this side wearing camouflage army uniforms, placing the life of an animal above the life of the people in the village next door. You know, the, the the memory hasn't even started to get old yet. Yeah. What was going on here for so many decades. So, you know, we can't be now sending a message back to the community. I think it's so rude to expect to defend this landscape and its wildlife.
for our gratification so that we can go on holidays and sit at campfires and go to fancy lodges and do safaris and so on and so on. In order to do that, we're going to go to the community and ask the young men to come and be trained up to protect it against their uncles and so on and so on. Then we're going to pay them some ridiculous salary and then expect them to uh, to love it or appreciate it or whatever the word is, you know, to develop the ethos. No. We've got we've got so many injustices to rectify before we can sit back and relax. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a lot of work and um we can't just sit back and rest on our laurels and it's uh, it's a lot of work and a lot of dedication. And and you know, there's 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 trauma. There's historical trauma, there's childhood trauma, and these are the fathers bringing up children now. Yes. Uh, you know, from that apart, apartheid time, there was a huge loss of human dignity and so on and so on. And we're dealing with that. There's no safety nets in this country. If I place a gun in later into a team's hands and they have to use it in the line of duty to defend an animal from poachers, somebody gets shot or whatever it might be, we don't get a box of chocolates and a stuffed toy the next day. You're back on duty or you go to jail. You know, there's no counseling and um, oh, boo-hoo, look at this person. You have to follow it and keep on moving, don't you? traumatized through the work it's got to be the other way around yeah you know if you take your kids into bed with a beautiful story about the elephants at the water hole and the babies that were suckling from the mother and so on and so on not oh your mother's gi jane you know and she was a shaven head and war paint on her face and it's so cool because i carry a gun that you know i don't want that on my conscience no no the other way is is much is much nicer. Tucking them in and telling the the lovely stories about the animals is yeah. a nicer way to be. Um, I have a, a question about you know I because I do animal advocacy work and I I'm on a lot of these social media platforms and talking about this type of work and I'm baited constantly by what they call trollers these people and it and it's always men it is always men who come on and they want to they want to fight me and they do it to the other animal advocates too and they you know they're the, the so-called conservationists or scientists or economists who are claiming yeah. that, that trophy hunting is the better way that it's actually good for the land it's good for the people it's good for the economy the ecology and i it's controversial very much so and so i wanted to ask what your thoughts on that are how do we you know how do we combat combat that when we're constantly being um erica it's such a critical discussion and the you know in all of my years i i did i did that you know that was part of our economic um, policy it was one of our financial tools in our toolbox and it was big five animals as well elephants and buffaloes and so on and so on and uh, it took us quite a long time to realize that this is all smoke and mirrors economically. If in 27 years, I would not have started an NGO called Transfrontier Africa to build schools and plant vegetable gardens and put shoes on children's feet and look after the animals and the donkeys that take the kids to school and put boreholes in so that people have got access to water because these are all the things that the trophy hunters have been claiming to be funding. Right. I've been a freaking warden and a conservation practitioner that's all i ever hear from them and yet i had to start an ngo and do it myself and i refuse to prostitute the animals on the landscape that i am uh, ordained to look after for the sake of that it, it's uh, it's a kind of perverse way of justifying 
an archaic practice uh, to say that I have to kill animals to build schools. What absolute balderdash is this? Firstly, you're bailing your government out of its primary responsibility. Right. Okay, when Leta gets paid her salary, she gets taxed by the government. And the government is proud to read out its annual budget of how much money it's going to pump into schools and hospitals and, and social well-being and all that kind of thing. You know, and then the trophy hunters come in and say, well, we'll bail the government out. We'll just plug a few elephants and a lion and a blah, blah, you know, and all this sort of thing. And yet nothing ever changed. Where's that money going? You know, we're still driving around 20, what, 30 year old Land Rovers and, you know, bouncing with no air conditioning and what, what, where's all that money going? So there was another angle. If I'm going to lose animals to poachers, and I want to try and get the community on my side to not, har not harbor poachers and not uh, and to see poaching as a criminal activity, then I can't be allowing some big Texan guy or some guy from Germany or what have you in to come and shoot the animals here yeah. for money. And then at the same time, tell that community, you can't come in here and touch a thing because I'm going to put you in a body bag if you do. Right. You know, so what message are we sending out? This is a white man's playground. We come here, we can do whatever we like. And if the black man comes anywhere near this place, we shoot you. And in fact, I'm not going to do the shooting because I'm too busy celebrating killing an elephant. I'm going to get your children to shoot you, yeah, you know, and pay them a minimum wage. It is the most perverse, it's perverse. way of justifying conservation that I've ever met. I can say this as a qualified, with all my academic background and what have you, somebody who has practiced this for 27 years. So I can proudly say that on the landscape where the Black Bambas work, we have not tolerated trophy hunting for it is now 10 years. Yeah? And we are, uh, we've, we've gone over to the, um, the non-consumptive industries, spoke about the commercial lodges in the past. They're not angels uh, that are out there right now. The lodges have a big footprint. They have a lot of service providers coming in and out, air, air conditioning repairmen, whatever it might be. There's a lot of wastage. There's a huge energy consumption. There's a lot of garbage that is generated, refuse that we have to deal with. There's vehicles driving around, harassing the animals, so on and so on and so on. But for every vehicle that goes out, there's 10 people on that car that are going back with this wonderful spiritual experience of seeing a lion roar and watching a baby elephant suckle from its mother and so on and so on. It's not just one elite guy that can come in here and kill for fun and get out because it's, it's very expensive to shoot an animal. Very, very expensive. I'm not talking about your airplane tickets and your fancy lodges and all that sort of thing. That's very expensive too. But to buy the rights to kill that animal is very expensive. Now, if you've got that kind of disposable income, that's right. Go freaking skiing in the Alps. Yeah, you know? I know. It's it's disgusting. I agree. Um, you so you cannot convince me. I'm, Erica, you cannot convince me because I've had to do it. And it's the hardest part of any conservationist's life. The irony of it all, I will stop ranting after this last statement <laughs> because I am on a rant about this and it's all right. unlocked something that's very dear to me. The irony of it all, just like communism and socialism, it looks fantastic on paper. Right. And if it wasn't for the human construct, it might actually be justifiable. Right. But when you are in a third world environment with borders that are so porous and such loose morals, and a, and a moral compass that spins like Captain Jack Sparrow's pocket watch, you, you know, then how can you possibly expect a practice like that to deliver the goods that is written in some Marxist manifest? You know, uh, because that's what it boils down to. It boils down to a regime that looks good on paper, that cannot possibly be implemented 
and self-regulated inside the countries. Why do we not tolerate this kind of thing in the Northern Hemisphere? Because it won't fly. But let's go down to Africa. What's you know, interesting, let's go well, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's interesting you say that because you know just recently I learned that they are now creating these canned hunting um, yes. ranches. Farms. Farms, yeah. yeah. And they are, mm. I know that six, about 16 or so that I know of at this point exist in Texas. I'm not, let me not say anything. I have to bite my tongue a little bit. Uh, but they're in Texas. I'm sure they're in other places too, but I'm sure that a lot of people, folks, if you're listening to this and you happen to be in the United States, this stuff is existing now. It's, and they're, you know, big game animals that shouldn't be there. There's, you know, zebras running around and, and antelope and all these animals that don't exist in the na in nature in Texas, in the United States, they don't belong there. And these big, you know, fat cat dudes with all this money, like you said, the disposable money, they don't know what to do with it, you know, and invest, become a philanthropist, give money. There's, there's so many poor people in the world. There's so many things, good things that you can do with your money. This is how you're choosing to do it and and then have the audacity to say that this is good for the uh, for ecology and for conservation and for it, it where and how and in what world can that possibly be true and how yeah, is it legal how is this legal and it's happening well, it's all smoke and mirrors it, it gets to it's smoke and mirrors to try and perpetuate that part of a rich person's lifestyle you know so they hide behind the banner of conservation all the time they wave that conservation flag willy-nilly all over the show just like the japanese were very happy to wave the research flag when they wanted to continue to kill whales okay yeah. so there's no difference to me there's no difference to somebody going to a homeless person and harvesting his kidneys to save uh, some rich dude uh, probably because you know that's wrong as well and we've got rules and things in place to protect the homeless from that sort of thing right. you know and i I just think it's ridiculous that you would uh, take animals from Africa, move them across to the United States, or maybe so you could breed them, so you could perpetuate this practice. Uh, it's, it's um, man, it's uh, it's part of our evolution. We put somebody on the moon. We communicate around the world on a thing this big. We can access as much information as we like at the click of a finger. Um, this, you know, hiding behind this thin veneer of conservation all the time to justify these practices. And yet we have evolved so far that we've put somebody on the moon. We we are um, exploring galaxies with probes and so on and so on. I can access, you know, and that's all thanks to this little appendage on the end of my hand. And I can use this to phone my mother and, and tell her how much I love her. You know, I can use this to take um, a, a needle and stitch up somebody who might be bleeding to death or whatever. There's so many good things I can compose the most beautiful music with this finger and so on and so on. And yet... I will choose to use the same thing to pull a trigger and kill a big animal. It makes absolutely no sense in the evolution of the human mind and the way that our value systems have changed over time, that that surely has got to be such a small sector of our society that we are trying to please and appease, that we are prepared to change legislation and hold international conferences to appease this minuscule little sector of our society. I say, hang on a minute, when did democracy become about the smallest part of our society? Because if you put this to a popular vote, I promise you now they're going to lose. I agree. I agree. 
And, and yet here we and here we have debates and debates. I have to fly around the bloody world to have the same rent that I'm having to you now. And you know the statistics are nobody's listening to statistics. Nobody science has never changed uh, the management opinion in my time. Uh, you know I'm a, I'm a great advocate of science and I employ a massive scientific team here. I was one myself. But the the, the bottom line is that it's the lobbying that is going to win. So those guys lobby harder because they've got the bigger bucks and they align themselves with the National Rifle Association, Safari yeah. Club International, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they, it's politicized, okay? Uh, it's globally politicized. They go to the African states and they're convinced that they say, listen, nobody's listening to us anymore, all right? So let me get a puppet figure from an African state and bring them across to say what I need to say. Now it's coming from an African person from Africa. Now you have to listen. You know, but the only people that are benefiting from trophy hunting are the outfitters and the trophy hunters in that that money moves in that circle. Yeah. Anyway, ranty rant. I've been banned from just about every meeting for having these rants. Oh, stuff. well, I, I can appreciate that. And I <laughs> applaud you for getting banned from those meetings for doing so. Uh, so, yeah, I they can't ban me twice, so I can say it again. <laughs> <laughs> How do we combat this with, you know, the, the people up at the, you know, high government levels who are okay all of this and i know it seems kind of an absurd question right right how do we even contemplate such a thing but i just i don't know because it is happening at the higher up levels isn't it it's not just yeah, it money because the people in the power they all work together don't they that's right that's what it boils down to at the end of the day money begets money and you know it's, it's very influential money is more influential than numbers people numbers and democracy is supposed to work on people numbers, really, you know, but it doesn't. Right. It works on the size of your wallet. But, you know, uh, I, I go back to, and I'm, I'm going to do a bit of backpedaling now. If it, if this was a utopian world, then there might be beautiful wilderness areas out there that you can say, I'm going to helicopter some guy in to shoot some crusty old thing, um, put it out of its misery and make enough money to protect that wilderness for the rest of our lives. But, you know... Because we humans, that crusty old thing then becomes a young teenage thing because they can't find the crusty old thing and the hunters only got one more day left. And, you know, so the the, the rules and the boundaries just start expanding all over the show. And, yeah. and that outfitter doesn't want to lose his income and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, no, it's not going to work. It cannot work because we are human beings. And we've proven that time and time again. Yeah. Why would we prop up a failed model? We know it's failed. I mean, trophy hunting has been going on in our landscape for Decades, long before I was born, and yet the communities that they've been propping up are still living in abject poverty. Right. You know? Hasn't so, for them, has it? No. No. And there's anyway. so much ego involved in it as well. You know, these these people who do this, it's just, uh, that's what it's feeding, is their ego. It and it's, it, yeah. The thing, the thing that really upsets me is that they want me to protect the wildlife here from poachers' guns. And to fund that, I must prostitute some of the animals out to save the rest. It's like burning your furniture to warm your house. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to find a different model. Uh, and then how, and then I must just put more and more money into building bigger fences, getting more helicopter fuel and so on, because my local communities next door are going to look at this lot and say, what a screwed up situation. Apartheid ended years ago, but we still are being told, put a foot on the side of the fence, I'll blow you away. But that guy can come in because he's got enough money. Why don't you give me the hunting permits? If there are permits available for animals to be shot legally, why can't I have them as the chief of this village and then decide if I want to sell them or burn them? 
Mm-hmm. You know, why can't I make that choice? But we saying, no, 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 no. You guys, you stay one side. I'll make all the decisions of who dies and who lives on this landscape. Right. Yeah. We've digressed horrendously off topic. Well, let's uh, let's take it to a, a more positive aspect. And so if there's people listening to our show today, um, either on podcast or YouTube, and they want to just, you know, regular people just have a few dollars and they want to donate to your worthy cause. Is there a way that they can do that? Um, there is indeed. They can go onto our what is it called? Our website. We'll have all. Um, your, we'll have all I your can't links. Remember what That's it is. Okay. It's, on, it's on our Facebook uh, account and Instagram. Or on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, yeah. later. And Instagram. <laughs> Great. They can do it through there. That's wonderful. We're going to have all yeah. of your links attached to our profile. Every single one that that is you know beneficial for folks to go to and learn more about the Black Mambas and or donate. Um, we'll have all that uh, listed and posted. So, thanks, Erica. You know, I should I should mention that we got um, you know we've been around now for ten years, and nine of those ten years was subsidised by the government of South Africa through the National Park Board and the Department of Environmental Affairs. So we got quite a nice subsidy, and it was it was more than thirty percent of our entire budget because they believe so strongly. It was only because of COVID-19 and various other things that the subsidy stopped. So now we live 100% off the, the goodwill of the generous people out there, the donations and so on. Okay. So, but I do want to just, you know, I don't want to forget to mention that the government really stood by us for a long time because they do believe in the women empowerment model. Uh, and I like to think that we've influenced policy at the highest possible levels, you know, all the neighboring parks and the national parks and that are going in a similar direction. The women are finally getting a, a place in the conservation arena. So the yeah. value systems are going to shift. They want to change. Yeah, that's great. Amazing work. And uh, bravo to you all for, for making that happen. And uh, obviously it's proven that women uh, can and should have a place in conservation. Yes. And you're making incredible uh, strides in, in making that happen. So wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for your good work. And, you know, Craig and Leita, it's not often in our in our lives that we're fortunate enough to come face to face with your heroes. And you really are that to me. I am, you know, I'm honored to be able to sit here and chat with you about all of these things. And I, it's not lost on me that this is a great gift. So I want to thank you both so very much for taking time out of your busy schedules and everything that you're doing, all of your good work to be here with us today. Much Absolute pleasure, Erica. Thank you very yeah, much. Thank you so much for stimulating. Yes, and a stimulating line of questions. Eh? Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you. And my hope today in having us all together to talk about these things and speaking about your critically important work of protecting Africa's wildlife and supporting environmental education through community outreach is to hopefully impart some wisdom and inspire passion within the hearts and minds of other wildlife advocates who are listening um, or watching on YouTube. And, you know, to remind people that we can all make a difference, every single one of us, each and every day, whether no matter how big or how small, you know, our collective voices together can carry the weight of, you know, to create change and create miracles and transformation. We all have that ability, you know, one at a time at a, you know, together. So that's my hope. You both inspired me. I, I'm humbled by you both. I hope that you know, many others will be inspired by listening to our show today. And I want you to both know that you have a standing um, invitation anytime to please come on the Rising Lioness show again. And also with 
all about animals radio. They'd love to have you on also. So thank you. And thank I, you very much. Erica. I hope I get to see you again. I hope I will be honored and uh, that would be. Yeah, you have to visit us. Yes. And then I'll take you out on patrol. You're if always welcome. If that's a legitimate <laughs> invitation, you might actually see me. I, I might actually take you up on that because that's um that's on the top of my list. I really want to do that. So it would be great. And then yeah. we do another podcast in the bush on <laughs> patrol. That's, that is a dream. So yeah, I would love that. That'd be great. I'll, uh, I'm going to talk to Val about that. So <laughs> maybe yeah. see me. That'd be super cool. You can set it up for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, you guys. Until next time, namaste and have a wonderful day and be well. Thank you. Thank Good. you very much, Erica. Bye. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye. This has been Erica Salvamini for the Rising Lioness podcast on All About Animals Radio. A special thank you to Chris Corley for generously lending us his song, Zero Gravity, for the Rising Lioness podcast theme. Please, Take a moment to write a review for our show as it helps others to find us. Please also support our guests and their work, All About Animals Radio and our social networks. Doing this further supports the animals and their advocates too, thereby making you an Animal Kingdom warrior also. You can find our links on the Rising Lioness podcast page. Until next time, in the words of Sharon Nunez, Animal Equality President, remember this. The small actions of one passionate individual can create a butterfly effect leading to a movement that has the power to change the world. Please use your voice for the animals today.